Well, now this evening, no more summaries. <clears throat> We're going to start straight away with chapter 9 of Daniel. <clears throat> and we have entitled this chapter the in the sovereignty of God, the Messiah, or the Christ, the focal point of world history. <clears throat> in chapter 9 of Daniel, we have the vision of what we call the 77s, <clears throat> sometimes called the 70 weeks. I think more correctly and more helpfully called the 77s. The vision of the 77s. Some scholars have said that over this chapter, in all the chapters of the book of Daniel, there should be the most agreement. But in actual fact, it is upon this chapter that there is the most disagreement. We have given as the theme of this chapter whatever else we might feel about its interpretation about the numbers that are contained within it and the chronological systems that uh, the chronological system that we must settle upon uh, to find some scheme here. The one thing we can say is that it has a theme. And the theme, however we interpret this chapter, is th that in the sovereignty of God, the Christ has been made the focal point of world history. Now take this chapter 9 and follow me through it. <clears throat> the first thing we find if we uh, read those first few verses is that Daniel understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. He understood, another version puts it, he perceived in the books the number of years. He understood as he read the word of God, as he read some of the scriptures that at that day were already extant, he understood not only something about the uh, duration of the captivity, but he understood uh, something more. He came to understand by revelation of the Holy Spirit when that time began. In two places in the prophecies of Jeremiah, he spoke of 70 years of desolation, 70 years of captivity for God's people. But nowhere, this is an interesting point, did Jeremiah say when it was to begin? He just simply said that it, there would be a captivity which would last for 70 years. It was a judgment upon God's people. In both instances, in Jeremiah 25 and in Jeremiah 29, he prefaces his remarks about the 70 years, the duration of the captivity, with... Um, a very real definition of the rebellion and the rejection of God's counsels by God's people. And he says, because of this, Jerusalem is going to be desolate. There will be no mirth, there will be no singing, there will be no joy. The millstones won't grind. 
everything will come to a halt. And for 70 years, the city and the temple and the land will lie desolate. But he did not give us or give anyone any actual uh, clue, distinct clue, as to the beginning of those 70 years. Now, this is most interesting. For you see, the obvious and the more natural place to begin the 70 years captivity would have been at the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Uh, generally speaking, most people would have said, well, the 70 years began with the actual fall of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to it. But Daniel, as he looked at the prophecies of Jeremiah, as he read and studied the prophecies of Jeremiah, and as he went back into the rest of the scriptures, um, and the light that they threw upon uh, this 70 years captivity, he came to understand by revelation that the 70 years began not in 586 BC, but in 606 BC. That is, they began with the first stage of the captivity. You will remember in our studies in Kings and in Chronicles, that um, we said that the captivity or the exile took place in three distinct stages. Um, the first of those stages was in 606 BC when the king and the nobility were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and taken to Babylon. The last of those stages, the third and the last, the final stage, was when Jerusalem, the siege was laid to Jerusalem and it was razed to the ground. Now the Holy Spirit revealed to Daniel that it was 606 that marked in God's mind the beginning of the 70 years. Why do we make such a point about that? Because it's just revealed how very close to the Lord Daniel was walking, how scrupulous and diligent his attitude was toward the Lord over his word. He wasn't content with just settling on some obvious and perhaps generally thought and understood idea as to where the time began. He was open to the Lord, and because of that, the Lord was able to speak to him. He found by the revelation of the Holy Spirit when the 70 years began. That's most important. And then, what we want to note also, that in his perceiving in the books, or understanding in the books, what the number of these years was, we must not, we must not in our mind confine Daniel's perceiving in the books to the prophecies of Jeremiah. I think many people think that, that, that Daniel just had the prophecies of Jeremiah. But I don't think he did have the prophecies of Jeremiah. He didn't perceive in the book. He didn't perceive just in a prophecy. He perceived in the books. Now, why am I making a point about this? Well, if you turn back to Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12, you will discover uh, Jeremiah's first prophecy in which he actually mentions the 70 years captivity. And then if you look at chapter 29 and verse 10, you will find it is repeated again. Twice Jeremiah actually tells us the duration of the captivity. <clears throat> now, 
just let's read one of those scriptures. Jeremiah 25, <clears throat> verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. It shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation saith the Lord for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it desolate forever. Now if you will turn back to Leviticus. <coughs> you might wonder what on earth Leviticus has to do with the captivity. But if you turn back to Leviticus and chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 27. I'm not going to read it all, but I would like you, if you are really interested in this, to read from verse 27 at your own leisure to verse 39. I would also like you to read uh, chapter 25 of Leviticus and compare the two. I will read just one verse, <coughs> verse 34. Then shall the land enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lieth desolate, and ye are in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall have rest even the rest which it had not in your Sabbaths when ye dwelt upon it. Now what does this mean? <clears throat> well, if you look at 2 Chronicles, chapter 36 and verse 21, and remember that the book of Chronicles was finally compiled in its present form later than Daniel, you will discover that the compiler knew a secret. He says this, verse 21, chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles. <clears throat> to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, for as long as it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. <coughs> now what does this mean? It's a most remarkable fact. For it means that the 70 years captivity were 70 sabbatical years that were never observed. Now I'm afraid, I, I know the mathematical amongst us will probably think I'm silly to this, but for those like myself who are not the least bit mathematical, I'm going to, uh, uh, different times through this evening, just put the thing on the board because I think it's much easier for you to understand. Seventy years. Seventy years. Do you know the sabbatical system? One year in every seven that a ground was to lie fallow. No sowing, no reaping, nothing done to the earth. <coughs> now the scriptures tell us that the seventy years were the seventy sabbatical years that had not been observed. So we must multiply this by seven, which gives us 490. 490. This is the remarkable fact. <clears throat> when uh, Daniel understood not just the duration of the captivity, no one had to have any understanding for that, it was there, plain for all to see in two places in Jeremiah, but I believe he understood something of the meaning 
of the 70 years captivity. He saw something of its spiritual significance. He saw something of its background. Is it not most interesting that when the angel comes to him, he speaks of a further 77s? In other words, he has seen something about the 70 years and their significance in the background, but now he is told that there is a further 77s. In other words, another period of 490. I think that is a rather impressive and remarkable fact, particularly in the light of Daniel's prayer. For twice in his prayer, he mentions the fact that the captivity is to do with the word through, uh, of Moses thy servant. So it wasn't only Jeremiah that, uh, that Daniel had been studying. He'd been evidently going back into the law. I don't believe he just simply meant by that that it was uh, to do with um, uh, the breaking in general of all the law that had come through Moses. There is, I think, a distinct possibility that he had discovered something of the prediction and prophecy of this captivity already in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. For you, those of you who will remember this, you know that in Deuteronomy, there is the most remarkable prophecy, do you remember, of Moses, of what would happen if the people turned away and did not observe the laws and the statutes which were to be given to them. It had never happened before in their history until the captivity, when they were, according to the word of Moses, scattered into every nation and people and land. <clears throat> now, that's something at least of a background. For it seems to me that Daniel's understanding of the past, the 70 years, and what, uh, as it were, was be behind them in spiritual significance, prepared him for the vision of another 77s of a different kind. That's just a very interesting fact that has come to light as I've looked at this chapter. The prayer ministry of Daniel, I think, is one of the most impressive things uh, in the book of Daniel. We have already mentioned uh, that as one of the great factors that the Holy Spirit is seeking to present to us in this book of Daniel. In service, prayer, prayer and testimony. In this chapter, of course, we get a, 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 an eye opener uh, into the uh, ministry, the prayer ministry of Daniel. He is instrumental in effecting the return uh, to the land. He is instrumental in the rebuilding of the city. He discovers when the captivity is to end. That the time is almost immediately at hand. That's why it was so important for him to understand by the Holy Spirit that it began in 606. In the first year of Darius, he was less than a year off from the accomplishment. <coughs> Within a year, this tremendous prophecy concerning the return was going to be fulfilled. Daniel not only understood the duration of the captivity, he not only understood the spiritual significance of the captivity, but he also understood too the uh, that the fact that that, that the uh, fulfilment of God's word was 
very near at hand. And this is the most remarkable thing of all. He takes hold of God's sovereignty and God's word and defends it. Um, I've said it uh, last Tuesday and I've said it, I believe, once or twice in the last week or two, that I believe here we're on the threshold of a discovery. Uh, about prayer, which is absolutely strategic and vital in any real uh, ministry uh, in the secret place. You see, Daniel could have so easily said, well, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Within 12 months, this tremendous prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Isn't that wonderful? We're all going to go back or a very large crowd or a remnant are going to go back to the land. It's, it's tremendous uh, to think of it. Well, praise the Lord for that. Our misery, our alienation from the land, the desolation is all near its end, isn't that one? But you know, when you read this prayer of Daniel, you don't get anything of that spirit at all. Instead, you and I, if we were presented with this prayer or could hear it, would say, Oh, poor Daniel. Poor Daniel. He hasn't heard. We must tell him that it's near at hand. Listen to him. Thy sin, our sins, are confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel. And the way he pleads with the Lord, he seems to go round almost in a, in a kind of cycle in his prayer, pleading with the Lord, pleading with the Lord to do something pleading the fact that it was in the Lord's own interest that he should do. You and I, if we uh, heard this prayer, would be quite convinced from our experience of prayer uh, and from present-day uh, prayer, we would be quite convinced that Daniel knew nothing about the sovereignty of God uh, and his word. Otherwise, we would have said uh, that uh, he would have been praying in a different way. No, you see, Daniel got hold of a secret. He had discovered something that's been lost in our day, the link between human vessels and the sovereignty of God. The link that it seems has got to exist between a people, however small, on earth and an almighty God in heaven for something to be done. It's as if the Lord refuses to move or to work until he's got a foothold on the earth itself. It's the most impressive and uh, significant thing. And I feel that I must underline it before we pass over to the actual vision. For after all, almost two-thirds of this chapter are taken up with the prayer and not with the vision. And whereas books and books and books and books, I could fill this table with books, literally, without exaggeration, on the 70 weeks of Daniel, uh, but very little has been written about the prayer of Daniel. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit has given more uh, of the record to his prayer than he has to the vision. Otherwise, perhaps the volumes would never need to have been written uh, if more time had been given to the... The Holy Spirit has put the emphasis upon the prayer ministry of Daniel, lest we get uh, an unbalanced idea um, of this wonderful chapter. Well, let's just note very briefly the characteristics of his prayer. 
There, one thing that comes out in it is his identification with the people and the sin of the people. There's no praying for them. Their sin. Them. He prays all the time for our. We. It's all we and our. He identifies himself absolutely with the condition and with the sinfulness of the people and their past. Not just then, he identifies himself with the past. And then this whole prayer breathes an intimate knowledge of the Lord. Oh, the way Daniel pleads with the Lord. One of the great intercessors in Scripture is Daniel. Abraham was called a friend of God because of his intimate, personal way in which he could approach God and speak with God. But here you've got an atmosphere of someone who knows the Lord, who knows, if I may put it reverently, how to deal with how to put things, how to just uh, define it all. It's beautiful the way Daniel not only uh, confesses his sin and unworthiness right the way through, but the way he continually stresses the grace of the Lord. He presents us with a problem in one place. He says, and Lord, to thee belongs uh, righteousness and grace. And then he says, because we have rebelled. A, a remarkable uh, statement in actual fact and some versions have tried to get over it by putting though we have but it stands on record that it's the word is because and we could say so many other things about his knowledge of the Lord and his knowledge of God's word it comes out throughout this prayer this is not a prayer that's emotional it's a prayer which has deep emotion but it's based upon a knowledge of God's word He's discovered something in God's word. And then everything is centered in God's purpose. In verse 16, verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20, you get the repetition of Jerusalem. Thy city, the city which is called by thy name, thy holy hill, thy sanctuary. Again and again, he, he stresses that everything is bound up uh, with God's purpose. His prayer is not for himself. Daniel wasn't even going to return. It was the most unselfish prayer that's probably been prayed in the Old Testament. It was nothing to do with himself at all. He had nothing to gain by the people going back whatsoever. He'd given himself entirely to the Lord for the Lord's sake. I think there's one man we could have said could dissociate himself from the sin and the backsliding and the waywardness of God's people. It, it was the man Daniel. But he was the one who identified himself with it all and gave himself to a ministry of intercession that effected the return to the land. Now Daniel is given an understanding for the necessity of the return. And that is what I find to be one of the loveliest things in this ninth chapter of Daniel. As if the Lord wants to disclose a secret to Daniel. Daniel now is an old man. He's an old, old man, very near to the end. Somewhere near his night, almost in his nineties, if not in them, uh, and he is now giving himself to a, a, an amazing ministry, consistent ministry of prayer. Now the Lord discloses uh, something to Daniel. Why must the people return? What is the reason behind the people's return? Have they got to return? Can't the Lord keep them perhaps in captivity? 
Is there not some other way without all the sacrifice and suffering that must of necessity follow in going back to the land and building what is desolate uh, and uh, barren? The secret is this. The land has got to be repeopled. The city has got to be rebuilt. The temple has got to be restored because of the coming of Christ. Daniel, it is revealed to Daniel that the coming of the Messiah and his redeeming work is the focal point of world history. It is the center and the heart of everything. Now this was revealed to Daniel 490 years at least before the Lord Jesus came. Centuries before, it was revealed to an old man in prayer that the key to his life and the key to his suffering and the key to so much that the Lord had called upon him to go through was all to do with the coming of the Messiah four centuries ahead. You know, I believe that when the Lord gave Daniel the vision of the 77s, he gave him the key to his own, his, his preceding visions. What about the stone in Daniel 2? I wonder if Daniel had sort of questioned that stone. I sometimes wonder. I mean, obviously, all expositors since have had great uh, uh, trouble, uh, one way or another, over these visions. I wonder if Daniel, because it says all the way through, it's a most amazing fact, we never read of Isaiah or others feeling the same, but all the way through the book of, da of Daniel, we've discovered that Daniel becomes quite ill through his visions. Truthfully, he becomes quite ill. It says his countenance changes. He has to lie down. Sometimes he's sick for so long afterwards. Uh, he says his thoughts alarmed him. Uh, he obviously was a, a sensitive man, and what he saw baffled him now I wonder when he saw that stone cut out of the mountain hurtling down upon the image, whether he thought, I wonder what that is. What is that? Is God going to intervene in some strong arm way and going to smash the whole thing? What does it mean? And then when he saw that other wonderful vision of the ancient of days, and then someone like unto a son of man coming near to him, and to this one who was like to the son of man, being given the dominion and the power and the glory and the honor and all the kingdoms were given to him. Now suddenly I believe it all falls into place. Daniel's given the key. It's to do with one who is called the Anointed One. The Christ. The Messiah. And furthermore, it's revealed to Daniel that four centuries ahead, the Messiah is going to appear. So now Daniel has his whole vision broadened. It's not now a question of instructing heathen monarchs in the sovereignty of God over world history. Now he sees God's not just, as it were, showing off, just trying to impress some heathen monarch uh, uh, as to what he can do. Now Daniel begins to see it's the Messiah. The Messiah is the heart of it all. The Messiah is the focal point of world history. God's moving toward this great thing, the coming of the Lord Jesus, his breaking into time, his life, his death, his work on the cross, 
and then the course of world history being allowed to take its course in its anti-Christ spirit, its anti-God energy, until finally the whole thing will be wound up in the end. Well, that's something, I believe, of what's contained in this ninth chapter of Daniel. Now, could we have a little closer look at this chapter, this vision of the 77s? Now, it's most important to recognize at the beginning that scriptural numbers often have both a symbolic and a literal meaning. I cannot say anything more important than Stephen than one or two of these technical points uh, which ought to give some light upon very complex problems in scripture. One of them is this. Do we and must we take all the numbers in Scripture absolutely, literally? Or are we to take them absolutely and only in a symbolic way? I want to suggest that numbers in Scripture have both a symbolic and a literal meaning. And sometimes I think, and in many cases, the symbolic is more important than even the literal. Now, for instance, take the 70 years captivity. That is 7 multiplied by 10. 7 is a period always of completeness. 10 is a period of responsibility. These two figures you will find often, again and again, in the history of God's dealings with his people. Take the 40 years wilderness wandering. Well, like the 70 years captivity, they were literal years. But more important even than the literal years is the fact that it was a generation spent in the wilderness. One generation died in the wilderness. And that figure, 40, has come to us now to symbolize probation. Probation. It doesn't matter whether it's 40 years, or it doesn't matter if it's 40 days and 40 nights of the Lord in the wilderness. It doesn't matter if it's the 40 um, other figures that you'll find, 40, the 40, is it months? I can't remember in the ark. Uh, you'll find always that it speaks of this great period of probation or testing, trial. Always the same. So we see in the 40 years of the wilderness wandering, on the one hand a symbolic meaning, on the other side a literal meaning. We see in the 70 years captivity, on the one side, a period in which the irresponsibility of God's people is completely eradicated. It's burned out of existence. When that remnant goes back to the land, never again do they bow the knee to an image. If there's one thing that can be said about the Jewish people from that day to this, they've never, ever taken an image into their homes. It was burned out of them in 70 years, living in the midst and the heart of idolatry. So you have, on the one side, symbolic meaning. On the other side, you have a literal meaning. I want to read to you a paragraph in... Uh, Professor Harrison's History of Old Testament Times, which I feel is very important. Part of the difficulty in interpreting the reference uh, 
1 Kings 6 actually, correctly, lies in the fact that the Oriental peoples often use numbers to signify more than purely mathematical considerations. Indeed, the attitude of the earlier biblical writers towards general computation has much in common with that of the modern Bedouin Arab. Where a fair degree of chronological exactness is required, genealogies are far more important to the Oriental mind than the Occidental method of reckoning in terms of days, months, and years. This is one of the reasons for the prominence of genealogies in biblical narratives generally, and it also accounts in part for the usage of round numbers to express a pro approximate duration of time. Thus, the phrase 40 years was synonymous with the concept of a generation, whilst in Genesis, the period of 120, uh, 110 years, which marked the lifespan of Joseph, was the traditional Egyptian figure for a full life of an advanced old age. It is not always easy on occasions to determine whether the biblical numbers are being used literally or symbolically. Where there appears to be a motif or cycle involving sevens or forties and the like, it is probable that other than purely, cons uh, than purely literal considerations are involved. Now that's important, I think, for an understanding um, of numbers in scripture. They have a symbolic meaning and they have a literal meaning. Um, the two go often hand in hand. Now, let's take this particular uh, period. Seventy-sevens. Seventy-sevens. Or, as I believe in some versions, seventy weeks. The measure that is used here is a heptad. It is not necessarily a year or a day, it means uh, a period divided into seven. It was the word usually used for a week, but it does not necessarily only mean a week. So we have here 70 periods divided into seven. More better uh, translated 77. And we must also note this, that the exact beginning nor the ending of this 70 times 7 is as important as what is accomplished within it. There is a tremendous amount of material written on when this time, this period of 70 times multiplied by 7, uh, when it began and when it ended. But the scripture simply puts the emphasis upon what is accomplished within the period. It is most important that we should understand this. This period of 77s is set aside for the accomplishing of six distinct things. Three negative and three positive. If you look at verse 24, you will find them here. Seventy-sevens are decreed upon thy people and upon thy holy city for three negative things. To finish transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make atonement for iniquity. That is to clear the ground. And then this period is also required for three positive things. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So now we have uh, brought before us 
what is to be accomplished within this period? 70 times 70, 490. Within this period, there is to be accomplished a sixfold work. On the one side, the clearing away of sin, the finishing of sin, the sealing up of sin, and in that beautiful word, the atonement for sin. The word means the covering. It's the word used of the pitch and the ark to cover it with pitch, to cover it, to atone for it, to dealing with sin, and then on the other side, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to fulfill or conclude all the visions and the prophets. In other words, to sum up everything in the Old Testament. And finally, to anoint the most holy place. What does that mean? Well, you know what it means, surely. It means to bring in the true church of God. To anoint the most holy place. This period has been set aside for that. Now, that gives us a clue straight away to the tremendous nature of what is to be accomplished in this period. Furthermore, we are told that the accomplishment will be after the 69th. So now we have a period of 69 sevens, and we're told that after the 69th seven, these six things are going to happen. So that is also interesting. We're told that in the midst of the 70th seven, all these things are going to take place. If you look together very carefully in verse 26 and in verse 27, you find this. After three score and two, shall the anointed one be cut off. Three score and two. If you look before, you will find seven weeks and three score and two. Sixty-nine. Then, verse 27, and he shall cause a strong covenant to prevail. He shall cause a strong covenant to prevail in one week. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the sin offering to cease. So we have discovered that it is within the 70th week that we uh, find the accomplishment of this great work. Now, 70 times 7 equals 490. And before we go any further, I'd like just to point out to you another very interesting fact. That in the Word of God, we discover this period of 400 years or more linked with each great epoch in God's dealings with his people. From Abraham to the Exodus, 430 years. From the Exodus to the dedication of the temple, 480 years. From the dedication of the temple to the return to the land, 420 years approximately. The 430 years from Abraham to the Exodus is mentioned in scripture. <clears throat> The 480 years is again mentioned in scripture, from the exodus to the dedication. The 420 years we have got to discover from scripture. We know it's in the 400s. It's approximately, as far as I can make out, 420. And now we find from the return until the coming of the Christ is another period of 400, 490. 
Again, there's something that may at present escape our understanding. But there is something which I feel we must take note of in these dealings, these great eras or epochs of God's ways with his people uh, in uh, history. Now, this 70 times 7 is divided into three. If you look at verse 25 to verse 27, you will find it's divided into three distinct parts. First, you have 7 times 7, which is 49. 7 times 7, 49. So we have one period divided off. Seven times seven. Then we have a second period uh, divided off. Sixty-two times seven, which equals four hundred and thirty-four. Then we have a third period uh, taken off, which is one times seven, which equals so this 490 years is divided in, by the angel into three phases. Now, what do these three phases mean? Uh, what can we understand uh, by uh, this vision of the 77s? One thing becomes quite clear straight away if we look at the scripture. The... Even if we have great difficulty over the actual chronology of this period and fitting this 490 into the chronology, the symbolic meaning of it stands us in good stead. Seven times seven um, speaks to us of an absolutely complete and finished period. Now, is that true? It is absolutely true. For within that period, before the coming of the Messiah, we find everything to do with the Old Testament program ended. We find that this period takes us up to Ezra and Nehemiah. It covers symbolically the rebuilding of the temple, the restoring of the walls, the reconstitution of the people in the land, and it ends with the prophecies of Malachi. Now, I am only speaking of it in a symbolic way, but Anstey, and I know that Anstey is not uh, in favor with all biblical scholars. But Anstey, uh, from his chronological system, evolved from just simply scripture itself. Scripture, interpreting scripture. He discovers that this 49 years takes us right up to the prophet Malachi. Certainly we can say this, that symbolically, this period, this period which uh, symbolically represents a complete and finished program, ends with the prophet Malachi. As far as God is concerned, all his dealings historically with his people have come to an end. The Old Testament is closed. Of course, there are still something like 400 years to run before the actual Messiah appears. A period again of 40, a multiple of 40. Some 400 years are still to run, but as far as God is concerned, 
the last word has been given and the, pro the Old Testament program and economy is finished with Malachi. Um, the scripture here, I'm afraid, does not, uh, the actual Hebrew uh, here does not help us because every Bible scholar will tell you that Daniel chapter 9 and particularly these verses, the, the Hebrew is so ambiguous that you can translate it two or three ways. Consequently, you'll find versions giving slightly different things here because of the ambiguity of the Hebrew. Um, we can translate quite easily that the moat and the city and everything else being um, completed refers to this period of seven times seven. Symbolically, it represents the end of the Old Testament program. Then the next period, you have 62 times 7. Now, this is very interesting, for 62 <coughs> is not a multiple of 7. You can't do anything with it. Uh, if you add it to this, it's still not a multiple of 7. But look, add 62 to this. And you then have 63. And 63 is a multiple of 7. You see, the whole thought of this period is an incomplete period. It, it uh, leads us right up to the threshold of the coming of the Messiah. It obviously represents the, what we call the intertestament period. It represents that which is not officially, as it were, in Scripture, but is nevertheless there in God's ways, in the fact that God went on over those 400 years of silence until the first voice that we next, in which we next hear the voice of God is John the Baptist in the wilderness. The period is silent. Uh, it's incomplete. It needs this one times seven to make it a multiple of seven. For 63, uh, if I am right, is nine, nine sevens. It needs that. When you bring those two together, you have your complete period uh, again. You have another great era in Scripture. It is the intertestament period. When you come to the last period, the one times seven, you have a new beginning. It is at one and the same time, not only the end, of that other great period, the climax of it, the consummation of it. But it is, and this is the point that's stressed, it's a new beginning. The Messiah stands absolutely on his own, whilst he may and truly is the fulfillment and the consummation of all that's gone before. He is a new beginning uh, of God. And it is within this period, this one times seven, that we have accomplished the redeeming work of Christ. The redeeming work of God, his redeeming purpose is accomplished in the death um, of the Lord Jesus. That's quite clear if you read through this chapter nine. Now, one of two other things. We have mentioned the ambiguity of the Hebrew. We can translate verse 27 here, uh, which is often referred to the Antichrist. He shall make a firm covenant with many for one week. We can translate that in, in one week. 
he shall cause the covenant to prevail for the many. The Septuagint, and that is the version which the Lord Jesus quoted when he quoted this very chapter, Daniel 9, uh, in Matthew 24, he sp spoke, it speaks in the Septuagint, um, the, and one week shall establish the covenant with many. Most uh, of the older commentators have always felt that this verse refers to the Messiah and not to the Antichrist. It speaks of the, cease, the cessation of all the temple sacrifices through the death of the Lord Jesus. He had completed it. He had finished it. And in the one week, not in the 62, not in the 7 times 7, but in the 1 times 7, in the midst of it, he had caused the covenant of God to prevail for all. Do you understand? That's the meaning, I believe, um, of this in chapter 9. And then it says, after it doesn't give us any dating, but it says after this, the temple and the city shall be destroyed, and then there will be continual warfare uh, until the end. This began to be fulfilled in 70 AD, when Jerusalem and the, and the temple, the city, were destroyed under the most terrible conditions. And ever since, Jerusalem has been the hotbed of controversy and conflict and strife. Now, the great division is between those who think it's going to be rebuilt and there's going to be peace and everything else there, and those who believe that this refers to a continual warfare that will go on over it until the coming of the Lord Jesus and the reign of peace. Now, our further question, when did this time begin? We have spoken of it in a symbolic way. Does the, could this 490 years have a literal meaning? When did it begin? Is it just merely symbolic? It seems quite clear that Cyrus's decree, if you read Isaiah 44, and from verse 26 to 28, it seems quite clear that it is Cyrus's decree that is the starting point. Um, there are, of course, uh, because of the chronology that is generally received, um, Cyrus's decree cannot be the starting point in the eyes of many. Therefore, they have got to search round to find another starting point. And many different starting points have been suggested. <coughs> suggested. 445 BC, 454 BC, and so on. And then there has to be a, a quite a lot of juggling to get it to the right date, to bring it to the time of Christ. But it seems to me quite clear that Cyrus's decree is the decree mentioned in Scripture uh, as the one that would issue in the end in the building of the temple and of the city and of its walls. So it seems quite clear to me that that's the beginning. Well now, according to the generally received chronology, uh, the decree of Cyrus was issued in 536 BC. And if you take 490 years from 536, not by any possibility can you bring it. Uh, into the life of Christ. And there we have to leave what really is an unsolved riddle. For, you see, we must make this point that the chronology, the accuracy of the chronology for this period is by no means proved. There is a good deal more data for it, 
than for the chronology of other periods. But it, its accuracy is by no means proved. The supposition, for instance, that the Ptolemaic canon, uh, which is generally taken to be the basis uh, for the received chronology that uh, most uh, um, recognize, um, the accuracy of the Ptolemaic canon is by no means absolutely and unquestionably proved. And there are scholars and chronologists, such as uh, Anstey, who have seriously questioned the Ptolemaic chronology. They believe that it is out by at least 82 years. Of course, if it is out by 82 years, you take 82 years from 536, and then you uh, do a little bit of arithmetic, you will discover that that brings you taking away the four years uh, that we've got to because of the Lord Jesus being born in 4 BC. Uh, then you will discover it brings you to the year AD 29. But the difficulty with Anstey is this. He has absolutely refused to be influenced by any other what he calls secular chronology. And he has built up his chronology and found that there is not a single contradiction within scripture to its own chronology. If any of you want to see that, yeah, I've got two books, they don't belong to me, but I've got two books, which you can look at and study carefully. Great charts which prove that every single dating in scripture is absolutely uh, um, absolutely harmonizes with every other date. But the trouble, as I say with Anstey, is that the other, what he called secular chronologies, by no means agree with him. So there we are now left with an unsolved riddle. Uh, if we accept Anstey, then this scripture is not only symbolic, the 77th is not only symbolic, it has real meaning, beginning with the decree of Cyrus. It brings us to the year of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Right up to the point. If not, well, and we take the generally received chronology, we still have to remember that it is by no means proved and by no means unquestionably accurate. So there we have a riddle. But I think uh, that uh, there are some other interesting factors here, and I can only just mention them just in passing now. Uh, in verse 27, are there three and a half years left over? Some people say in the midst of the week, the, the Messiah would be cut off. And they say now there are three and a half years left over. And the general theory is that this three and a half years is left to the end. We do not see this. Cannot quite follow this theory. But I must, in all fairness, I feel bound to present to you some interesting facts and just simply leave them because I can't say that I understand them myself. But this figure of three and a half appears again and again and again and again and always it is connected with tribulation. Why? Three and a half years of Elijah's drought. I've listed them all. Three and a half years of Elijah's drought. The uh, Daniel 7.25, a time, two times, and half a time. Daniel 12.11 and 12, 1,000 and so many days, and another 1,000 and so many days. Both are within the three and a half years, not less than, than, than three years, not more than three and a half. 
Christ's ministry, three and a half years. The preaching to the Jews only after the ascension, three and a half years. Revelation 2-3 speaks again uh, uh, of the three and a half years. In one place in Revelation it speaks of 42 months, the city being trodden underfoot. Another place it speaks of so many days, again adding up to three and a half years. Uh, so you go on with this amazing figure of three and a half. It's a study on its own. What does it mean? And why is it so often linked with the tribulation of, of God's people? Because always this figure we are told to note, always we're told to note it. Blessed is he, says the angel at the very end, or the Lord himself, at the very end of Daniel 12, blessed is he that comes to the 1,300 and so many days. Uh, we have to take note, I think, um, of this, because it's, again, it's most interesting. And then you've got to compare it with Daniel chapter 8, 2000, uh, the 2,300 days, which is six and a half years. You see, there's something here that we've not yet discovered. Well, what do we learn from all, from this Daniel chapter 9, with all its amazing mystery of figures? What do we really learn? We can learn this. We can learn the kind of prayer that uh, links understanding of God's word and God's sovereignty and uh, our, our present situation together so that his purpose is realized. The kind of prayer we learn from this chapter that brings just understanding of the times, yes, and God's sovereignty, yes, and God's word, and the situation that we're found in together, and brings God's purpose to pass. It's a lesson I believe we've got to learn. Another lesson we learn in this chapter is that the Lord Jesus is the focal point of world history and the determining factor. Whatever else we might feel as we look at these chapters of terrible kingdoms arising, cruelty practice on every side, there's one glorious fact that in the heart of it all, in the center of it all, it's all working out the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then when he's come, it's all the time is determined. It will run its course right through to the, to the end, and then it will be the end. It's all determined. The Lord Jesus is the determining factor. All Old Testament history looks forward to his coming. All New Testament history looks back to what he has done and forward to his return. So it's a, a wonderful thing when you look at it like that. And as we have seen, God's sovereignty already over world history in other visions. And we have seen God's sovereignty over the Antichrist. Yes, we've seen these things, but now we see God's sovereignty determining the coming, the life, the work, the death of Christ. So you see, everything lies there within the sovereignty of God. Well, I think I'm going to leave it there again this evening because I think it's an exhausting uh, uh, chapter from the complexity of its numbers. This coming week we were going to have a break completely but what we'll do is we'll go on and just finish the last chapter which there's not such a lot, it's not difficult the last chapter I'm glad to say um, but then instead of having a break we'll go on to Hosea.
Well, there we are. I don't know whether that has made sense to you, whether you really understand what we've said, but uh, suffice it to say this, that, uh, that there is something uh, unfathomable about God's Word, something absolutely true and absolutely real about God's Word. And we have only begun to learn some of the facts that are presented uh, therein. There, this evening, we have found that Daniel is given the key, the key to his own life, and the key to his ministry. Why must Daniel go through all that suffering? Why must he go through the trials that he went through? Why should the other three be subjected with him to so much uh, difficulty? And why should it, it all be built, all build up to the last part, Daniel chapter 6, when he's left in charge of the whole kingdom. What is the point? Oh, Daniel would have said before Daniel 9 came into being, he would have said, I can tell you now. I can tell you. It's quite simple. Uh, the people of God have got to go back to their land, that's all. They've got to go back. The city's got to be built. The temple's got to be built. But you know, when he was praying, and when that the angel Gabriel came to him, and spoke with him. He understood something that opened his eyes, I am sure, to a new realm. He realized that the going back of God's people was a means to him. It was the coming of the Messiah that was the heart of it all. And I believe then that Daniel, when it says Daniel, when at last he says, oh Lord, I'm so troubled by all these things. His last words almost in his book is, oh Lord, I'm so troubled by all this. What do these things mean? Uh, the, the Lord says to Daniel, Daniel, rest. You, you stand, you'll stand in your lot in the last days. Now you go away and rest. Old, old man that he is. He's so troubled. He wants to know what it all means. What are these terrible things he sees? This tribulation, everything else. He's seen the coming of the Lord. But poor Daniel, instead of seeing it in the way that he had thought of it, oh, glory, honor, power. Instead, it was revealed to him that it was conflict and suffering and tribulation. He couldn't understand. But he was told, go away, Daniel. Rest now. Seal up the book. It's not to be understood now. But in the end, it will be understood. In the finish, it will be clearly uh, revealed. You now rest, but you've got the secret. It's all to do with the accomplishment of God's redeeming purpose in the Messiah and through his being cut off in the midst of the 70th week. Then when he's cut off, Daniel, the city that you want to see rebuilt and the temple you want to see reconstituted is going to be destroyed. But don't worry, Daniel, because it's all... By then, the spiritual meaning of it will have been realized. You've done your job, Daniel. Now go and rest. You have achieved what God, what, what God wanted. You have been, you've served the counsel of God in your own generation. Now go and rest. Well, I'm sorry that it hasn't been easier and there hasn't been uh, more... Uh, 
lucid, but perhaps it will serve as an introduction. And if anyone wants any books to, to confuse them uh, on this chapter, they can come to me and I will give them a list that will give every possible theory uh, on it.